Good morning, Savior Community Church. Could you please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2? I am I just want to say I'm very, very glad to be here. It's just awesome to see so many like lifelong friends, partners in the gospel, and to introduce myself to many of you. And also this is epic, like this title page, like man. <laughs> it's like I'm it's like a movie poster. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, like uh, Pat said, my name is Jeremy, and I'm here with my wife, Julian, and our daughter, Maddie, who's two years old. And yeah, just to give you an idea of where our family is at, many of you already know through Austin and Ruth that we uh, have decided to give our lives to long-term missions, focusing on the unreached in Indonesia. So we just finished uh, our radius training in Tijuana, Mexico, and we're planning on moving to Indonesia, God willing, in a year and a half. And... I'm so glad that we get to team with Austin and Ruth, members here at Savior. And I just want to say I'm very thankful for this church. Like I said, I feel like I have lifelong partnerships in the gospel here. And a church that I feel is sending Ruth and Austin so well, loving them and being part of what God is doing in the nations. And right now, uh, if I can ask for your prayer and support it for us as a family, I think that's more than anything what we need. My romanticized view of missions is completely dead, right? I, I have more fear and worry and I'm daunted by the task than anything. And I feel daily this fight for faith. Like um, it's easy to fall into fear and doubt, but just pray that God would set our eyes on Christ and really that he would help us persevere on this path. So aside from missions, I also just wanna say I'm thankful for the leadership here. I was under these leaders, uh, the elders, Pat, uh, John, Jason, Rand, they've had a huge impact on my spiritual life. And specifically regarding Rand, you know, our passage today says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God and in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And one thing I've been very impacted personally by Rand is he is not a peddler of God's word. He seeks to speak very plainly what God says plainly in his word, and that is something I appreciate more and more, and yeah, I'm thankful. So for today, I'm not going to preach a mission sermon or anything like that. Uh, my hope is to simply encourage you uh, in your faith through God's word. We've been going through a short series in 2 Corinthians at our church, and so these are just truths I've been meditating on. So I hope you're encouraged. Let's read from verse 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 through 17. This is God's word. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Please bow your heads and let's pray. Father God, uh, we need your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to gather under your word recognizing that you have spoken and revealed yourself to us and you've given us everything we need for life and godliness 
and to persevere in faith through a life of brokenness. So God, I pray that this time would serve to encourage all of us and to bring us all to lives that glorify you further. And so God, that is our humble prayer, and we know that it is your will, so we ask that you would accomplish that in our hearts through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get into the text, I want to introduce the context of the book of Corinthians. Now, for every book of the Bible, context is very important. And I almost feel like I don't have to say that here. I feel like maybe here context is too important. (laughs) But context is so important. What is going on in that specific time and place, the original audience, recipients, what kind of culture they were living in, the city, what they were suffering through, the problems they were facing. Because when you understand that, it brings God's word to this sharp focus. And it brings a weight to God's word. For example, if you found a random letter, and on that letter it said this, leaving you was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I am so sorry I can't be there for you, but you are the greatest gift to me and I love you more than you can ever know. Imagine if you found out who wrote that letter and who he wrote it to, and you find out the person who wrote it was a teenage boy writing to his girlfriend, and he wrote that because he was leaving on vacation for two weeks. You would say, man, that's a little dramatic. (laughs) It's two weeks, the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Now imagine a new scenario because this was an actual letter. This is a real letter that was written. And this was written by a dad to his daughter, a dad who was deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. And he was deployed when his daughter was 10 months old. And he wrote this letter in case he never made it back and the dad never made it home. And the mother gave this letter to the daughter when she was old enough. And the daughter read this letter, her own dad telling her, leaving you was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I'm so sorry I can't be there for you, but you are the greatest gift to me and I love you more than you'll ever know. And all of a sudden, because we know the real context, you can almost imagine the emotion this daughter must feel as she reads her own father telling her, you're the greatest gift to me. I'm sorry that I can't be there for you. All of a sudden, these words have weight. And I'm giving this example just to make a point that context matters for every book of the Bible. It is in God's wisdom that he wrote the scriptures through history, through real people in a real circumstance, because he he knew that knowing this context would bring God's word to a sharp focus. It would bring a weight to God's word. It would show how these passages apply to us today. Context matters, but especially I would say for the two letters Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Because when we understand the context of Corinth, we begin to see clearly why Paul wrote what he wrote in these letters. So what was the context in general of Corinth? And I want to just share three aspects of this context that help us understand why Paul wrote what he wrote in these letters. Number one, this culture was a culture whose identity was defined by money. One commentator writes that in Corinth, status was determined by money. Corinth was a a location that was the perfect place for trade among many cities. It brought a lot of culture and wealth to the city. And for the people living in the city, status was determined by their wealth. Secondly, this culture was a culture of sexual promiscuity. To live like a Corinthian was a common phrase in that day that was well known in surrounding regions. To live like a Corinthian meant you are a person who lives in sexual immorality. Corinth was a port town, and there was 
prostitutes and immorality that was rampant. And already these first two characteristics help us see, oh, I'm starting to see why Paul, the issues he's addressing in these letters. But thirdly, and the most relevant for our passage, is Corinth was a place that highly esteemed status and honor. And the people of highest honor in this culture were public speakers. Isn't that interesting? Corinth was an entertainment-oriented society. The Isthmian games were held every couple of years. And at the center of these games were oratorical competitions, public speaking competitions. And today, if we have celebrities, the equivalent of celebrities in Corinth were orators, public speakers, men who had eloquence, who could strike on to the people, who, who could articulate using all these fancy methods. And there are letters from the time of Corinth explaining how orators would actually have their upper bodies waxed with tar in order to resemble Greek gods who've descended among the people. And through their appearance and their powerful speech, people would be awe-inspired and they would be trembling with admiration and they were the celebrities of the culture. Now you can understand in 2 Corinthians why Paul is having to respond to accusations against him of how unimpressive he was in appearance and speech. If we have this verse up, verse up, 2 Corinthians 11, 5 through 6. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. That's the culture Paul was dealing with. It was a place where your identity was defined by wealth, rampant sexual immorality, a place of entertainment and celebrity where I, people idolize status and public speaking. And to me, that kind of sounds like LA. Kind of sounds like where we're living. Los Angeles is a modern day Corinth, which is why this book speaks so directly to so many issues the church in America has. That's the general context. Now, more specifically, what's the context of this letter and even this passage? When you read 2 Corinthians, it's almost like you get the sense you just walked into a conversation. And you don't know what it's about. It's like if you were to walk into a conversation with two friends and one friend is on his knees begging the other friend, red-faced, saying, please believe me. Please believe me. If you walked into that, you would say, okay, I can infer this guy doesn't trust this guy. Something big is on the line, but I have no idea what's happening. That's kind of like what it feels like to read 2 Corinthians. It's like walking into a conversation and Apostle Paul is on his knees and he's saying, please, you need to believe me. Now what's going on here? The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to defend his apostolic ministry. You see, the church in Corinth was beginning to distrust that Paul was an apostle. This is a church that Paul formed. He preached the gospel. Believers came to faith And when Paul left, newcomers came, these super apostles. And Paul says that sarcastically because for the Corinthian church, these super apostles were superior to Paul in every way. They were just awe-inspiring. And so for the Corinthian church, if Paul was an apostle, these guys were super apostles. They were Jews who claimed to be ministers of Christ, but they were preaching the old covenant is still applicable today. But it was not necessarily their message that was persuading the church. It was their presence. It was what they stood for. It was what they looked like. It was what they sounded like. They were so impressive and good-looking and put together and wealthy. And the Corinthian church saw they have the lives that directly appeal to what we want. They have the life comfort and status and praise of man and wealth. 
And the heart of the issue going on in 2 Corinthians was these super apostles were convincing the church in Corinth that Paul was not a true apostle and his message could not be trusted. And the argument they were making was how can Paul be an apostle when he is so weak? Look at Paul's weak presence. Look how battered he is by suffering. Look how unimpressive he is in speech. How much God has afflicted him. How can Paul be an apostle when he is so weak? And the Corinthian church was becoming convinced, you know what? If he was a true messenger of God, would he be so afflicted? Would he be so unimpressive? And maybe his message of the new covenant is not true. And Paul writes this message to defend his apostleship. Now, this is a side note, but one thing we need to note here is how crafty is the enemy? Right? We see that the enemy is so crafty in leading the church away from truth. Now, in our culture, the enemy will not normally try to lead the church away from truth through some weird cult who comes in and everyone already has their guard up like, whoa, even though we know that does happen, right? But look at uh, this verse in 2 Corinthians. Can we put this verse up on the slide? <coughs> 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We see in Corinth, Satan appeals to the things our culture loves, that American Christians are already drawn to. Comfort and status and praise of man, a comfortable family, a comfortable home, and these are the things the enemy will use to paralyze the church into inactivity, to divide the church, to lead the church away from the truth, because that is exactly what he does for the Corinthian church. Satan knew what they loved, and he appealed to their desires by bringing in these men who represented their, the lives they were working for, the lives they idolized. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And the question is, do we as a church realize that we can be outwitted by Satan? That we are more influenced by our culture than we realize. And if we're not careful, Christians can start to treat Christianity and the church in a way that supports the life that they desire instead of aligning our lives to God's purposes, which often leads to a life we would not choose ourselves. And one of the main applications of this book is for us to simply recognize, man, I have a lot of idols in my heart. As John Calvin says, the heart is a factory of idols. I have a lot of personal desires and hopes for my life that I at times prioritize and place over God's revealed purposes in the world. Brothers and sisters, may we be cautious of our hearts. This verse, Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This book challenges us to realign our hearts and priorities to God's purposes for the church and the advance of the gospel. That is why we exist. That is why we are here, the church and the advance of the gospel. That's the end of the side note. So back to what's going on in this letter and in our passage. As we said before, Paul writes this letter to defend his apostleship. Now, this letter is not Paul being petty or insecure the way a person is insecure when someone calls him a failure. This is Paul defending his apostleship because the gospel is on the line. So the question we're asking today is the same accusation the super apostles were making against Paul. How can Paul be a true apostle of Christ when he is so weak and Paul's argument is my weakness is the very evidence I am a true apostle? And Paul is going to defend his apostleship with three points. Now, the nice thing about preaching a sermon 
instead of a sermon series, is you can take all the truths of the book and just put them in one sermon because you're not going to be here for the rest of the series. So this sermon is kind of like all the truths in Corinthians, like the themes wrapped up. But when you read a book, you can often see the same truth just thread throughout the whole book. And that's how it is here. But he says, my weakness is the evidence that I am a true apostle because my weakness shows my love for the church. That's number one. Number two, because my weakness follows in Christ's footsteps. And number three, because my weakness is the means by which the aroma of Christ is spread. So first, how can Paul be a true apostle of Christ when he is so weak? Number one, because, he says, my weakness shows my love for the church. Again, this is not explicitly in our passage, but it is leading up chapter one, two, thread throughout the whole book. Paul's arguing the proof of my ministry as an apostle is my sincere love and devotion to the church. Whereas the super apostles are concerned about their agenda, their praise, lifting up their glory, Paul says, look at my love for the church. And he pours out his heart in this letter. Can we put these verses up? 2 Corinthians 2, 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction, and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Second Corinthians 6.11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. Second Corinthians 8.16, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Second Corinthians 11.10-11, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And this was the most messed up church Paul wrote to. And look at his love bleeding out of his heart. Do you question my apostleship, Paul asks? Look at how much I love you. And Paul goes on to say, the evidence of my love for you is my weakness. Next verse, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three eight 28 to 29, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? The reason I'm weak is because I love you. You know, loving someone, this sounds so cheesy, loving someone has a way of making you weak, right? Have you heard the phrase, a mother is only as happy as her saddest child? You know, in our youth group, uh, we have a lot of teenagers, and I'm sure for parents here as well, but in our youth group, we have a lot of teens. If you look at the many of the parents of our youth group students, many of them are walking with a limp. You can tell there's just a weight on their shoulders every Sunday. What is that? It is anxiety. It's concern for the well-being of their child because a parent is only as happy as their saddest child. You could have 10 kids. All of them are successful. All of them are Christian. All of them are doing well except one. One is being bullied, one is suffering, one is struggling, and the mother cannot be happy. She cannot stop thinking about that one suffering child, and as a result, she walks around with a limp and weakness. And Paul says, I also walk around with a limp. I have daily anxiety for the churches. That is my lifelong calling and burden as an apostle. I am bound in love to you, church. I cannot be happy unless you are doing well. And this example of Paul is an important lesson for every single Christian. I think we need to hear the church was never meant to be something primarily that we consume from. It is meant to be something that we see. This is the purpose of my life, to build up. Carl Truman says, you know, only in a place like America, America can we say something like, become a Christian and go to church for no other reason than it will make your life better. 
only in contexts like Corinth where people tempted to view Christianity and the church something to add on to your life in order to improve your life. But that line of thinking was so foreign to the Apostle Paul because Christianity, in a worldly sense, made Paul's life absolutely miserable. To the point where he said, if Christ has not been raised, and if we have hope in this life only, we Christians are, the, of all people, most to be pitied. Paul saw the church not as something to consume from, but to, to build up no matter the cost to his own life, to the point where Paul says, I am like a parent to a child in my relationship to the church. Look at these verses. You know, there's hardly anything I think a person pours into more than a parent Uh, more more into than a parent pouring into their child, right? Maybe a business that you start. But even then, it's like this business is my baby because I pour so much into it. But there's hardly anything a person pours into more. And that's what Paul says he is like. 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, I love this. But we were gentle among you. Paul says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. My love and devotion is kind of like a parent to a child. And I think the experience of many parents is the more you labor and toil over your children, like the more your love and devotion to them grows. You know how some people say when their child was first born and they laid eyes on their child for the first time in the labor room, it was a magical experience. Like they cried tears of joy. I did not have that experience. (laughs) The first time I saw my baby girl, Madeline, I looked at her in the labor room and I felt disturbed (laughs) because she looked so weird and I was kind (laughs) of like doing this. And I was like, I honestly felt a little guilty because I felt no love. I just felt completely weirded out in that room. But after many sleepless nights, holding her, she's shrieking. And after many sleepless nights, toiling and laboring over her, changing hundreds of diapers, I discovered a love for my daughter that I did not know I could have for anything. And my experience as a parent was the more I poured into my daughter, the more my love and devotion to her grew. And I believe this is the example Paul sets for us to follow. The church is something we pour into to build up, to love, and to grow our devotion for. But Paul says, be careful, because when you grow in love for the church, you will walk with a limp. Because there are problems in the church. But to be weak because you love the church is a good thing. That is Paul's first argument. I am a true apostle because my weakness actually demonstrates my sincere love and devotion to the church. Secondly, how can Paul be an apostle when he is so weak? Paul says, because my weakness shows that I am following the footsteps of Jesus. And this is really the main argument of this passage. Look at verse 14. Look at your Bibles. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's argument here is really simple. He's putting himself up against the super apostles. He's saying, okay, you think these are the ambassadors of Jesus, the ministers of Christ? Let me ask you this, church. Whose life looks more like Jesus? The super apostles are mine. Let me ask you this. Whose life looks more like Jesus? Think about it. Did Christ come in outward power? 
or weakness and humility? Did he come in wealth and comfort and outward attractiveness? Or did Christ come as a suffering servant, despised with nothing in his appearance that we should desire him? And here I just picture Paul presenting himself to the church, literally a mass of scars. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, From the Jews I received countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he has the audacity to present himself to the church and say, Who looks more like Jesus? From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. My weakness, my suffering, my scars are the evidence that I am an ambassador, the representative of Christ, because I am following the path of his sufferings. And to communicate this, Paul gives the craziest image in verse 14. He says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He gives this image of a triumphal procession. Now, at this time, Corinth had heavy Roman influence, so that they would all understand this image of a triumphal procession. What is that? If you are a Roman general, the highest honor that is given to you after a victory is a triumphal procession. After you conquer the enemy in battle, you are given the honor to march through the middle of the whole city, the whole city paying you honor. If you want a modern-day example of this, let's go to this slide. Think of the 2022 NBA champions. You know who that is? The Golden State Warriors. I love Steph Curry. Okay, he's like, anyways, that's off topic. The Golden State Warriors, do you know what they were given the honor of when they won the championship? A triumphal procession. They marched through the middle of San Francisco, tens of thousands of people chanting Steph Curry's name. You led us to victory. Now, this is crazy. The main difference between the warrior's triumphal procession and the Roman triumphal procession is the Roman general, when he was doing this, would be leading hosts of defeated enemies in shackles. All his enemies shackled up in the same bloody, dirty clothes with their heads bowed. The Roman general was leading them to the middle of the city, to their altar, to be slain in front of the whole city. He would be leading them to their defeat And what's so crazy about this is Paul is saying, I am like those defeated enemies being led by the Romans. My head hung low in apparent weakness and humiliation, defeated, suffering, and yet Paul is saying, my outward weakness and suffering will all serve to point to the triumph of Jesus. And the main point Paul is communicating is my life is following in the path of Christ's suffering. My life looks like Christ because Does this image of the Roman triumphal procession not remind you of Jesus' triumphal march on the road to Golgotha? The hill where Jesus would be crucified, where the Romans led Jesus, his clothes all torn up, bloodied and beaten, being led by the Romans to his altar of sacrifice. Jesus following behind these Romans with his head bowed in apparent weakness and defeat, humbled to the point of death where he would be lifted up not on a throne but on a cross. But that cross in his apparent weakness and defeat would actually be his triumph over sin and death. And Paul is saying there's a deep connection between the cross of Christ and my ministry as an apostle. That not only my message will be about the cross, but my life will be a pattern of the cross. 2 Corinthians 4.12, he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Just as the suffering and death of Christ brought life and salvation to many, my suffering will be used by God for life in the church. David Garland, this next slide, says, The cross determines 
both his message and his style of ministry. And those who preach Christ crucified cannot expect to be crowned with glory by the world which crucified him. Now, what is so sobering about this truth about a cross-centered life is this is not only how Paul viewed his own ministry, even though it was to an extreme. This is how Paul and Jesus viewed the Christian life in general. Romans 12.1 says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Jesus said, Christian, take up your cross and follow me. Up front, before his disciples... He told his disciples, a path of following me is a path of sharing in my suffering, of bearing your cross. And remember the sobering words Jesus says to Peter after his resurrection. He says, Peter, I will bring you to a place you do not want to go. And he was referring to the death Peter would die to glorify him. And Peter looks at John and says, what about John? What about John? Because Peter is fearful of this life that Jesus is going to lead him into. And to be honest, I think for every Christian, if you think of these words seriously, it is scary to think of where Jesus will lead us. But we need to remember his next words to Peter in verse 22. We could put it up on the slide. He says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And the fear of the future and the fear of the suffering that might come, Jesus says, just keep your eyes on me. To shift your focus from your situation or your future or your shift it onto your Savior. Keep your eyes on Christ. Now, I want to push this a little further because I think the older we get, it is easier to just keep our eyes fixed on myself and my situation, living in fear and doubt. If I can share personally, as I shared earlier, I've been battling that a lot with missions you know, when I processed missions as a single dude, I was all gung-ho. You should see these Biola missions conferences. It's like, who wants to go die for Jesus and all these Biola people? Yes, me. Let's go die. Let's suffer. We were so fueled by passion and excitement. I was like that. I was like, let's go die for Jesus. And then I got married, and then I had my daughter, Madeline. And the moment I had my daughter, I was like, God, I don't know if I want to do missions anymore. And there's all this fear all of a sudden. Like, what if something happens to her? God, how do I know she'll be okay? God, if the worst case scenario happens, how do I know you will still be there? And God's answer to us is look at the cross. Look at the cross. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? One commentator says, this is the logic of heaven. To illustrate this, I want you to imagine if I were to adopt a son, okay, and I love this child very much, and we discovered that this child who we adopted was suffering with a heart illness and was going to die. He needed a heart transplant, right? And so we do tests. My heart is not compatible. We do tests. My wife's heart, Julian, it's compatible. And Julian says, I'll give him my heart, And out of love and out of pain, Julian and I agree to save this adopted child. Julian will give her heart and she would die and the child would survive. And it was not just Julian's sacrifice, right? It would be my sacrifice, losing the one I love most for this child. Now imagine we went through with this. The operation is successful and he's saved. And imagine once Julian is gone, this adopted child comes to me and says, Dad, how do I know you love me? How do I know you'll provide for me? How do I know you'll be there for me? What do you think I would say? I would say, son, do you remember your mother, (laughs) my wife? 
Do you remember the sacrifice she made for you and the sacrifice I made for you? I gave up the one I love most for you. And if I was willing to give up my own wife, don't you think I would do everything in my power to take care of you? And this is the logic in Romans 8.32. The pain any of us might feel in that loss is nothing compared to the infinite pain God felt in the crucifixion of his son. And when we doubt God and we say, God, how do I know you love me? If the worst thing happens, how do I know you'll be there? God's answer is, I did not spare my own son, but gave him up for you all. How will I not also with him graciously give you all things? God's answer every single day of our lives is look at the cross. See my love, the sovereignty and goodness of God displayed there, and follow me in faith. Trust me that I'm infinitely higher and wiser than you'll ever know, and I love you. Paul Tripp says this quote that has helped me so much. He says, God is rescuing you from thinking that you can live the life you were meant to live while relying on the inadequate resources of your wisdom, experience, righteousness, and strength. He is transforming you into a person who lives a life shaped by radical, God-centered faith. Yes, the Christian life is a life of sharing the sufferings of Christ, a life of Jesus maybe leading us to a a life we wouldn't choose for ourselves, but the daily call of Jesus is just look to me, trust me, and follow. Paul defends himself and says, I am a true apostle because my weakness shows I am following in the path of my Savior. Look at my scars. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. But thirdly and lastly, how can Paul be a true apostle when he is so weak? This is number three, because his weakness is the means by which the aroma of Christ is spread. Read verse 15 with me. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Now, when Paul uses the word aroma here, he's using it in the sense of how an aroma can draw people in, right? Imagine if you're hungry and you walk by a restaurant and they're sizzling like prime ribeye steaks over open coals and they're basting that with butter and herbs and the butter's dripping onto the coals and you smell that. You're just drawn in, right? I know many of us have a weakness for food We would just run in there, eat the steak, worry about the cost later. That is, it draws us in. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this point to say that my message has this drawing effect on those who are being saved. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul shifts it a little bit. He says, not only my message, but my very life will manifest Christ and draw people in. And Paul makes a point in this letter to say, God used afflictions to make me the type of person who would be a comfort to others who would manifest Christ. God used afflictions to make me like Jesus and manifest him to others so that they would be drawn and comforted. Let me, one example is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we which, would, which we ourselves are comforted by God. I just realized he uses comfort a lot in this passage. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so though cr- through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Paul says here and several times throughout the book, all the affliction and suffering that happened to me was for you. 
It was to make me manifest Jesus and to be like Jesus towards you. In other words, all the affliction that happened to me served to transform me in the, into the type of people who not only preaches grace, but displays the heart of Christ. You see, afflictions processed in humility have a way of making Christians more understanding, more patient, more gracious, more comforting to those who are suffering. For example, I heard this story from Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller. He said that there was a doctor in his church whose job would be to perform this injection on people's backs. And he said he did this for many years, and his patients would always be so nervous. And while he was doing the injection, they would be squirming and crying and crying out in pain. He said for so many years in his mind, he judged them. He was like, just sit still. It is not that hard. And he said one day he had to get the procedure himself. And when he got the procedure, it was so uncomfortable, he was squirming and crying, and he couldn't sit still. And he said after that procedure, he never treated his patients the same way again. He would actually comfort them. And he would actually be understanding and take time and be patient. Trials, process and humility actually humbles, humble us and show us, I'm not better than the person I used to judge. I'm not. I am a sinner before a holy God. And the worst sinner I know, I am not better than. And we actually become gracious. And in that way, we become like the aroma of Christ, like starving people drawn to the smell of food. Sinners are drawn to the love of Christ through our message and our lives. But Paul then goes on to say something very interesting. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. He says, yes, we are the aroma of Christ, the aroma of life to those who are being saved. But among those who are perishing, we are the fragrance of death. What is the fragrance of death? I want to share you one more story, okay? Recently, some of even people in this room went to Florida to meet our missions agency. We went to Florida for a week. Before we went to Florida... Some of our church people at our church went to Doheny State Beach, and I like fishing, so I planned to go fishing. I brought raw shrimp. I didn't end up going fishing, so I left that shrimp in the car, okay? I went home. I forgot that shrimp was in the car. I boarded the plane that night to Florida. I forgot the shrimp was in the car. That shrimp sat in my car in 100-degree weather and 90-degree weather for a week. Julian and I came home. I opened my car, and it was a fragrance of death. It was awful. It was like something died in there. It was utterly repulsive. And Paul is saying, the gospel I preach in my life, though it will be an aroma of life to some, to others it will be utterly repulsive. You see, the gospel has this paradoxical effect. The same quality that draws people in will repulse others. This means if we proclaim the gospel faithfully, we will be repulsive. We will be hated. And this is why Paul says, so who is sufficient for these things? Many will be tempted to peddle the word of God in order to be popular. But this is why Paul exhorts the believers, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And we need this exhortation because who here wants to be repulsive? In our culture, more than any other, I think we just want to be liked. That's like our life goal. I want you to like me. I want you to think highly of me. And the temptation for preachers and pastors, if it's to peddle the word of God to be popular, the temptation for lame members will be to be ashamed of the gospel and to not be bold in your witness. 
But Paul prepares us, doesn't he? He says, Christian, as you faithfully live out the gospel, many people in this world will hate you and you will be repulsive to them. But we do not peddle God's word. And we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the only hope for this world. It's the only hope. And Paul goes on later to say this is why you need an eternal perspective. You need to see this life is short in comparison to eternity. That sin is real and the judgment of God is real. That we deserve to be under the wrath of God. And if we do not believe in Christ, all that remains for us is an eternity under the just wrath of God. But there is hope. It is the gospel. And we do not peddle the word of God. We preach the gospel. And we are not ashamed of it. But to the proud, to the self-righteous, to those whose God is this world, the gospel is foolishness. Jesus Christ is a joke to be mocked, and his apostles and his church are regarded as the scum of the world. But to the poor in spirit, to the meek and humble, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Christ is beautiful. The gospel is our hope, and his people are all my delight. How can Paul be a true apostle when he is so weak Because Paul's weakness shows his love for the church. Paul's weakness shows that he is following in the footsteps of his Savior. Paul's weakness is the means by which the gospel goes forward. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Brothers and sisters, may God make us weak so that Christ would be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you that in your wisdom, God, you wrote your scriptures through real people through real circumstances, knowing that they would directly apply to our circumstances here and now. And God, there is so much temptation around us just to be liked and popular and to pursue money, sex, and power and to live for this world. But God, I pray that your spirit would actually bring affliction into our life because to have Christ is so much better And to live for Christ's purposes is so much better than any purpose we could conjure up for our lives. But to devote our lives to the building of the church and the advance of the gospel to the nations. Lord, give us the grace to do this. Keep us on this path. Because we sense our own weakness and our proneness to wander. Our flesh is weak. But Lord, we know you've given us your spirit to dwell in us. So that we can become the people you've made us to be. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving us. All glory be to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.